So that's John chapter 3, starting at verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptised. Now John also was baptising at Anon near Salim, because there was plenty of water, and people were coming and being baptised. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Well, thanks, Sarah. Now, what does the word success mean to you? Success. Uh, when you reach your twilight years and you're looking back on all that has been in your life, um, how will you measure what success has been like, what, what your life has been like? On the flip side, how will you measure failure in your life? seems to me that uh, it's almost hardwired into us that the main way we work out what success and failure in life look like uh, is comparing ourselves to others. Uh, it seems to be the pretty standard way of doing it. Uh, we measure ourselves, our life, uh, based on what others are doing and what they, their life seems to look like. Um, success, we think, is looking like uh, that group of people you know, over there. Uh, in your mind, who, who is in that group? Uh, what kind of people? Uh, often sort of people with money or with a you know, happy, overachieving, big family, uh, people with lots of nice things or perhaps just respected uh, in, in their communities. Uh, failure is to end up looking like a different group of people, isn't it? Um, you know, and who in your mind is in that group? People uh, with what kind of job, with what sort of house? Now, maybe you don't think like that, or at least not consciously, uh, but it seems that it is a pretty normal human trait uh, to try and measure our life, our own success, based on what uh, others are doing around us. And then we do all we can to look like and to be like and belong to the A-team, the, the group that's cool. So we work hard, we make sacrifices uh, towards our goals to be that sort of success that we set out for. We might need to get the right credentials, the right stuff, uh, just whatever it takes to be one of the cool kids. Because we don't want people thinking we're failures, do we? That's a pretty, uh, pretty common human felt need. Wouldn't it be a shame, though, uh, perhaps the greatest shame, if we went through life measuring success that way, striving towards, working towards what we think success is, uh, only to find out at the end of our lives we we're measuring success wrong the whole time. Uh, and there was actually a better way to live. 
There were far better decisions we could have made, far better priorities we could have had, if only we thought about success differently. We could have lived differently and found something far better than success, actually. Something far better than success. We could have had joy. We could have joy no matter what the circumstances of life we find. No matter if other people think we look like failures or not, we don't care because we've got joy. We're not caught up trying to impress others or working hard just to have the things they have. Wouldn't that be great? Well, John the Baptist, uh, the John we heard about in our Bible readings today, um, let me just give you quickly the basic details of his life uh, from what we know from the Bible. Now, as I'm giving you these kind of details, just in your minds, would most people say that John's a success or a failure? Here we go. Uh, John was born into a privileged family. His father was a high-ranking priest. Um, So John had all the privileges and opportunities. His life was given to him on a platter, actually, uh, far more than most people in that part of history. Uh, But John grew up to be basically a weirdo, uh, a loner who lived in the desert, uh, wearing clothes made of camel hair and eating locusts. Now, for a while, John seemed to be uh, quite popular, very successful uh, with a ministry. He grew a huge following and had significant influence. But then he lost it all overnight. He went from a hero to zero, and it's kind of what happens in that pivotal moment in his life we read about today. He he fades into the backgrounds, and eventually John was arrested for being a bit too religious, uh, you might say, a bit too judgmental, actually, about how how other people should live. Uh, Then he was executed in jail. Uh, Probably not much older than 30, somewhere around there. Now, if only John had kept his head down, worked in the family business, he could have had a very successful life, couldn't he? Like, why make powerful enemies? What a silly thing to do. See, when you just consider the bare facts of his life, uh, many people might conclude he is a failure and a complete loser, actually. But then when we look at the passage we've just read through, looking at it carefully, we see how John defines success. Now, how he does that with crystal clarity. John gives us all a model uh, or an example to follow with clarity. Uh, with clarity, how we actually should be defining success in our life and then how we can build our life around that clarity, that definition. Rather than comparing ourselves to others, which will only ever breed envy or greed or bitterness or disappointment, John points us in the direction to find joy. And that is probably the best measure of success I can think of, how to find joy. Most of the year uh, so far at church, we've been working slowly through the Gospel of John, and it's been a stunning introduction to Jesus. It's a fantastic way of uh, being exposed to who Jesus really is, those first few chapters. A key idea has kept coming up time and time again, actually, already, that we need to believe in Jesus to receive eternal life. Uh, We've seen that idea already in uh, in three chapters in many ways. We need to believe. What does that mean, though? Uh, It's a pretty complicated concept, belief. It's not just you know, agreeing to an idea that it's true. It's, it's far more than that. But, but what is it? What, what does belief look like? How does it play out? How is it expressed? And how is it, how is it expressed to believe in Jesus particularly? What's involved in belief? Now, John the author, um, not John the Baptist, John the author, uh, he explores that question in lots of ways all through his gospel. Uh, we'll see all kinds of ways that belief is unpacked and explored. Uh, but in passage today, he seems to be giving us a great example He gives us a model with John the Baptist showing us what belief in Jesus involves, and it's a model that we can aspire to be uh, following ourselves. So uh, as always, as we jump into the passage, it'd be great to keep uh, your Bible open in front of you to John chapter 3. We can open up again if if you've closed it. It'd be great to look at that as we go. Um, 
Of all the uh, details we're told in verses 22 to 26, the who and the where and the when and how much water there is, we've got lots of detail there. Uh, the main thing I want to point out is that John is baptizing. He's doing his thing while Jesus and his disciples down the road, they're doing that as well. Uh, that seems to be what's setting up uh, the main kind of uh, content of verses 22 to 26. Um, there's some sort of argument that breaks out verse 25. Don't know exactly what's involved in the argument, but the result of it, verse 26, is very clear. Uh, John's disciples, they're unsettled. Uh, it, it's actually kind of easy to see why when you think about what's going on. Uh, John's disciples, they're the disciples of John the Baptist. Like he's the Baptist. That's kind of his thing. And so these disciples, uh, they've hitched their wagon to John. Uh, their lives are actually tied up with his success or failure. They're his disciples, and business has been booming. They've been baptizing a lot of people. Uh, you could think, we're onto a good thing here. We're really changing the world. This is a great thing to be involved in. And suddenly, it all changes. Now, just quickly note, in verse 23, uh, there are people still coming to John to be baptized. That's happening. But then have a look in verse 26. As these disciples of John, they go and say to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. They're clearly exaggerating. There are some people coming to them as well. But the point is they're, they're not that excited by this, are they? Um, they're exaggerating how bad things have gotten and it just feels like it because it feels like um, they're nobodies anymore, actually who should have been coming to us, is now over there, and they're hoping, I guess, that John the Baptist will fix this. You put yourself in their sandals, and you can kind of imagine, like, smelling that failure in the air. And, of course, they don't like it. You know, maybe they're workshopping ideas. Maybe we could do some, you know, two-for-one two for deals with baptisms and you get some more business. How might John respond to this? Now, if he was driven by the number of people uh, that he had influence over to feel like a success, if he thought that his voice was the most important one people should be hearing, to know that he was respected by his community, if that was what was important to him, I imagine him finding himself feeling very insecure at that point. His whole gig, the whole Baptist thing, is, is passing by. His own star power is fading. Now imagine the uh, social media influencer who's watching in real time their number of followers uh, or views just nosediving. And their competitor, as it were, uh, is just taking off. I think that's the kind of uh, dynamic that the disciples here are fearing. How do you feel at that point? Are you envious? Despairing? You know, I've worked so hard for this. Now what? Now what, what's John going to do? Is he just going to work harder at preaching better, or is he going to you know, spread some rumor about Jesus to undercut his ministry? Of course not. Like John doesn't go down those paths, but just to feel for a second uh, what this would be like. Having your entire purpose for living, uh, that sure thing that gives your life meaning, suddenly taken away. Now, what is that for us? Uh, what is that thing, that relationship or that career? Uh, what if uh, tomorrow morning you get to work and you find out that artificial intelligence has made you replaceable? Goodbye. The thing you've been working so hard at, you're now obsolete. You can feel that concern. Like, after all, what is John without baptizing? Well, John knows exactly who he is, actually, without or with baptizing. It doesn't matter. Uh, he knows what success really is, what it involves, and his response in verses 27 to 30 has crystal clear, a crystal clear grasp of reality and formidable logic. And I think it's a kind of clarity that when you have this can be a bit confronting, I think. So his disciples are flapping around in tears, wondering what's become of their purpose for life. 
But John speaks and he cuts right to the heart. Verse 27, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. A person can only receive what is given them from heaven. It does sound a little bit like John's reciting the great Australian proverb, you know, oh, it is what it is. Just a grim acceptance of reality. It does sound a bit like that, but it's not. Um, yeah, that, that sort of sentiment, it is what it is. It's kind of the only thing I think an atheist can really uh, say at the end of the day. If someone's suffering or grieving or experiencing colossal failure in their life, if the universe is meaningless, uh, all of reality, in those kind of despair, despairing moments, it actually collapses to that simple thought, well, that's just what it is. What a bleak outlook on life. But John knows the universe is not meaningless, uh, and all our experiences we have, everything we have, it comes from the loving and caring hand of God. God gives according to his plans. He builds up, he tears down according to what he thinks is best. The problem is, like, it's so tempting for us, isn't it? And uh, it's so tempting and so foolish to think that we could take more uh, or somehow earn more than what God has given. Or perhaps even more so, to think that God's got it wrong. He should really be doing it this way or that way. My life should be going like this. But of course, we can't see what God sees. We don't know what he knows. We, we can't love how he loves. So often, though, we still want to stand in his shoes and dictate how things should be. But not John. He trusts that God's plans are good. Uh, even if he might look like a failure to his own disciples, uh, John trusts that God's plans are good because they're not centered on him. They're centered on Jesus. Verse 27, he continues, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. Uh, John's life, his God-given purpose, is to prepare the way for the Messiah, that's, that's God's king, uh, to serve him and serve him only. Uh, John's job is not to try and claim the crown for himself or build his own kingdom. And in fact, at verse 29, John gives a great little parable for us. <clears throat> the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. That's now complete. That's a pretty simple idea in that parable, isn't it? Like the best man at a wedding uh, would never jump in during the vows and sort of cut in and say, I do, and steal the bride away. It'd be ridiculous, wouldn't it? What kind of friend would do that? Probably a good thing to keep an eye out for though next week, Dan, just in case. The best man, he loves his friends. He finds great joy in serving and helping his mate in his mission, getting married. What a joy. When it happens, there is great joy for the best man seeing his best mate united with his bride. It's a wonderful moment. For John, he has the privilege of being a supporting act to the main show in history, actually. That joy is supreme, helping Jesus in his mission, seeing the Messiah gathering a people to himself and being united with them. Think about like John's experience of life. He got to witness people, huge numbers of people, meeting Jesus being transformed by his grace, having their lives change, not just in the moment, but into eternity. What a privilege to see that. What a joy. As John would say, the most complete and fulfilling joy, actually, for John. Because that's what he worked towards. That was his whole life, pointing others to the Messiah. So that's what success looks like for John, contributing to Jesus' mission. And that's where joy is found. It's where it's found for John, and it's where it's found for us. 
See, the mission of God to bring salvation through Jesus, uh, that's God's mission. Salvation through Jesus to men, women, children from every tribe, tongue, and nation. God is very, very good at that. He's very successful, we might say, in his mission. Uh, Billions of people uh, who were once without hope for eternity have been gathered into his kingdom throughout time, throughout the world. And God has done that through the service of people just like John, just like us. Jesus' mission, it's, it's unstoppable and it's eternal. We have that great privilege of getting that, that taste of sure success, as it were, the best kind, if we just hitch our wagon to Jesus and get involved in what he's doing. If we're setting our lives up to measure success, not by comparing ourselves to others or through our own accomplishment, but by knowing that Jesus is successful in his mission and we can serve him in that, if that's how we're setting up our life, there is no greater joy to find. If you can, just think of the most recent time you've heard someone uh, sharing about how their life had been changed by Jesus, someone's testimony. It, it just stirs the heart, doesn't it, when you realise something eternally significant has happened in that person's life. Someone very precious to their creator has met him and he is now in good relationship with him. Uh, just a bit of an example, I suppose, from a few weeks ago, John Warner from the Bush Church Aid was here. Hey, he shared briefly, uh, very briefly, too briefly, really, about some families uh, in Roxby Downs, uh, whose lives have been transformed radically. He mentioned some young indigenous guys who uh, had just been baptised. You hear the great work of people who were without hope for eternity, but now they know Jesus, now they know his grace, and everything has changed for them. It stirs the heart, doesn't it? Is there anything better in this world, actually? Is there anything better than witnessing or even being involved in that radical, eternal, life-changing transformation? We all have different circumstances, we all have different skills and uh, things to offer, different ways that we're going to play our part in God's mission. I mean, for instance, John. Uh, John literally was able to point at Jesus and say, yeah, follow that guy there, he's the best. Um, that's a very unique way he could do that. But if we learn to measure success differently to the world around us and keep, keep working on it, it's pretty hard. But if we're thinking first with clarity, how can I play my part in serving the mission of Jesus? How can I play my part in making his name great? If that's our measure of success, then our priorities look very different, don't they? We'll care less and less about the usual markers of success, you know, education, money, career, popularity, status. Not that those are bad things. In fact, all things are given from God's hand and they can be used for his glory, whether it's the work we're doing or the relationships we invest in. They're all good things. But knowing that they're not the marker of our success, we can have great freedom from pressure to perform. We don't need to succeed as the world around us wants us to. Instead, we can focus on what God wants us to do with what he's given us. And we get to work growing, uh, involved in him growing his kingdom through his King Jesus. At the end of the day, I think what set John, sets John apart uh, with his clarity is that he knows what matters the most in the long run. It's not whether people like him or not. But it's how he's playing his part in the biggest mission of all time that has eternal significance. I think as we sort of wrestle with these things, if we each uh, commit to growing in our desire, just day by day, growing in our desire to hear these precious words from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. I think then we've learned the true measure of success in life. Where John lands all this, though, in verse 30, I think this is a really confronting thing in all of this. Uh, this wonderful, wonderful phrase, 
as he speaks about Jesus, he must become greater, I must become less. Now, historically, that's a very true thing for John to say. His status, his ministry needed to fade to the background and Jesus comes to the focus. But it's a clear view that we can take as well in our lives, our day-to-day life. Day by day, uh, more of Jesus, more of his priorities, more about his fame and his success, his status, as it were. Day by day, less concerned about me and my success, uh, my status. So the thing that's confronting about this is I'm not sure we can have both of those things. A focus and uh, an ethic that just drives all we do to be successful in the way the world wants us to be successful and to also prioritise Jesus. I think we really struggle to have both those things. In fact, I think it's impossible, which makes it very hard. We can't prioritise our own kingdom and prioritise Jesus' kingdom as well. He's quite clear on that himself. It's one or the other. It's very hard. It's very hard to do that. It's perhaps a lifelong struggle to work out how to make Jesus bigger and me smaller. Now, in this, I'm not saying we shouldn't care about our jobs or that we shouldn't work hard to cultivate good relationships or um, yeah, do work, good work in our community. Of course not. It's just very clear logic that I'm just trying to step us through that is very confronting. If we're seeking to make Jesus greater and greater in our lives, the way we work, the way we go about relationships, the things we accomplish, um, they'll be increasingly shaped by Jesus and his kingdom. Because our motivation has changed day by day to not be about our own success or our own fulfilment. Our motivation becomes growing as a disciple of Jesus in all we do and to make his name great. Now, I guess I've been uh, speaking in abstraction a little bit here, and even if it sounds good, I want to give perhaps a few more slightly concrete examples about how this kind of plays out, this principle of Jesus being greater, me being less. Uh, So for one thing, if we're growing in that principle, I think we'll also be growing in the way we belong to our church. Uh, God's plan, uh, his mission is to grow his kingdom. Uh, The way that plays out mostly uh, is through local churches. Uh, God's plan, the local church, is is key, actually, to the mission of uh, of the gospel going out. Uh, Kind of like each local church being a beacon of light and truth and hope uh, to the world around us. And I have to say, I find it an incredible joy uh, to belong to a church that's growing, uh, growing in these ways together, growing in maturity, uh, being on mission together. It's a great joy to belong to a church where we're working on making Jesus' name great. I'm really thankful to be part of a church like this, knowing we're far from perfect and we've got a long way to grow, of course. But I do think our culture has this big idea built into it, actually. And I say that because I don't get the impression people come to Trinity Church Tonsley uh, because you have to. It doesn't feel like a chore. Uh, you have to fit into your week. It seems to me people are coming along, uh, we're looking forward to seeing each other, to serving each other. Uh, it seems that people are looking forward to encouraging each other in conversation and just catching up. Uh, looking forward to seeing together, to have our voices mixing in praise together. I don't know that many of you come with the intention to work out, how can I welcome someone new today? It's wonderful. Uh, we are a church that wants to push forward. Uh, we do want to keep uh, reaching new people. We want to uh, see more and more people saved with the good news of Jesus. Now, when we're concerned about Jesus being greater and focused on that, uh, when we're concerned about being uh, a church that's healthy uh, and how we can all play a part in that, it means if we're growing this, we'll do, we'll do hard things. We will push forward. Uh, it's actually, when you think about it, far easier to not try and plant new churches, to not start new things. Um, in fact, it would be far easier if we just shut the doors today and said, this is a great group of people. Let's not welcome anyone else in. This is going to be great. This is gonna, let's just coast along as a church. Believe me, that sounds pretty good uh, at one level. Uh, having just a, a great group of people, no more growth. would be fantastic. Far easier. 
But actually, we're concerned not about numbers of people in the church. We're concerned about Jesus' name being greater in our world, aren't we? That means we push on. We try and work out the hard things to do. How do we keep welcoming? How do we keep the doors open? How do we keep having new people join us in mission together? I think as a church, we want that culture just really built on more Jesus, less me. Another way this, I think, plays out and with a bit more concreteness, I suppose, is that if we're working on that clarity, uh, then we are growing in our commitment and investment in global mission. If we're really concerned about Jesus being bigger, me being smaller, I think we're concerned in global mission and investing in it. Uh, many of you have experienced that great joy, uh, as I mentioned before, that hearing testimonies uh, from others. Uh, but you know how sometimes you, you, uh, if you're on um, prayer emails from people like uh, John Warner at Bush Church Aid, uh, hearing about the prayer points uh, that he's sending through. Uh, many of you are supporters with the Purdy family with CMS. Uh, you get their prayer points. Or I know many of you are praying for the evangelical students group, uh, like the one just up at Flinders. How good is it? Do you, you get these sort of prayer requests come through from, uh, from those uh, people doing great work um, sharing Jesus. And you get to hear the stories, actually, the testimonies of answer to our prayers. You hear about those who were once lost uh, finding eternal life through the work that we've supported. What a joy. To Even on a screen, on your computer, to hear those testimonies of new brothers and sisters who have bowed the knee to Jesus. It's just a sort of moment sometimes you think, oh, like the, the financial partnership we have, our investment, the way we've been praying, the way we're encouraging those ministries, God uses those things. He really does to make the name of Jesus great. And what a day it will be uh, if you can kind of cast your mind to this uh, kind of thought. Uh, walking around on the golden streets of heaven with no magpies, I assume. We'll meet people there. We'll meet people there in heaven who are there because of God's grace and the way he used our resources, our words of encouragement and our prayers. And he used them to save souls for eternity. What a joy it is to be included in the work of God saving people. That joy will be complete on that day, I'm sure. Another way that this clarity plays out in our lives, uh, if we're focused on Jesus being greater and uh, us becoming less, this is the really hard bit, I think. I think it means we can get braver and bolder and be more willing to do things that make us look like losers or failures to those around us. Because if we're more worried about Jesus' status than our own, we'll just start doing those sorts of things. For some, it might be as simple as letting others know that you are a Christian. It might be a big step. Uh, letting others know that you're a committed follower of Jesus. Uh, it might be a bit awkward as you do that. You may lose some status as you let your work, uh, workmates or friends know about that. Uh, you may find yourself being invited to less parties or uh, less social occasions. Uh, you may even be overlooked for promotion in some cases. It might be hard, but if that's not how we're defining success, we'll be okay with it, actually. We know success isn't measured by promotions or how much other people like us. Because God's kingdom is growing as we share about the glories of Jesus. Uh, for others, you may make just uh, very clear decisions in your workplaces or uh, in your family or at uni or just in your life that other people will see and think is really foolish. Because you're prioritising things that are going to set you back financially. They will set back your career, actually. But you've done those things uh, for whatever reason, like you know, uh, not taking on a promotion with more hours or uh, deciding not to do more study so that you can go along to your growth group. Or so that you can take more opportunities to serve others and uh, maybe even you know, study at a Bible college instead. Silly ways, really, when you think about it. Uh, silly ways to get ahead in the world, but very sensible if it's Jesus we're on about. 
I'm sure you do as well, but I find it so encouraging when, uh, when people actually walk away from very respectable careers with you know, stable salaries to do something seemingly insane, uh, like the Purdy family. Uh, they're a family we support. They've gone to uh, Chile with Church Missionary Society, CMS. Uh, Malcolm and Ainsley have taken four very young children to South America to train pastors. Now, Malcolm, I don't know if you know this, Malcolm has a PhD in, I think it's biology or chemistry or biochemistry, like a very smart guy, uh, could have had a very successful and uh, steady career here in Australia, could have had a very normal Adelaide life. It's actually been quite hard for them uh, in South America. They've thrown away uh, what many people would say would be a great successful pathway to go and do that work, something very hard. And I think it's because they have that clarity. A PhD, that's not, about, that's not success for them. They just really want to make Jesus' name great. And the rest of their life decisions and their priorities follow from there. Now, it will look different for each of us, uh, but the same sort of clarity that John has on what, prioritize, what to prioritise in our life if we are committed to making Jesus greater and greater, our priorities, our decisions, and the details of our life all fall in line from there, I think. And it's there that we can find great joy. There is still something missing in all this, um, because I could understand if you're here today, perhaps new to exploring who Jesus is, uh, thinking, well, this all sounds actually kind of mad. Uh, why would you throw away the normal and good things of life for Jesus? Like, what's the big deal? What we have in the final few verses of this chapter explains the why, uh, perhaps a reminder for many of us, or just that kind of explanation. Why, why would you do this? It's a bit back to front, and perhaps I should have started the sermon here, I'm not sure, but uh, this final few passage, the final few verses in John 3 encourage us to make Jesus, uh, encourage us um, uh, of who, Jesus, who, who he really is and why we should make these changes. Now, the basic point in these final few verses is Jesus is so much greater than us in every way. He is so much greater than us in every way. So it's a sensible thing to do, to follow him, to trust him, just like John does. Uh, In these five verses at the end here, John the author sums up, really, what the whole book has been about so far. And here's a brilliant summary of just how great Jesus is that helps us put him first. Now, I'm going to just pick out some of the big ideas in these verses, and I think these are the explanation to why. Why Jesus really ought to be bigger in our lives, why he ought to be greater. Again, it's because he actually is greater than us. It's a simple logic. But have a look with me. Verse 31. The one who comes from heaven, that's Jesus, is above all. That is, there is no one in all of history who has more value or who is more precious or who has more power than Jesus. And John continues, it's because Jesus comes from heaven that we know all he says about truth, about eternity, about how to measure success, it's all true. See, verse 32, uh, we can trust what he says is true, to be the very words of God himself. The Almighty God, the eternal God, who created all things, he has spoken through Jesus. Verse 34, the one whom God has sent uh, speaks the words of God. So you think, how important is Jesus? Well, he reveals all we need to know. And unlike the prophets of the Old Testament, who God would empower uh, with the Holy Spirit for a time and in a limited way, the end of verse 34 tells us God has given to Jesus the Spirit without limit. And verse 35, completing that sort of great Trinitarian picture, verse 35, the Father loves the Son and places everything in his hands. Now, on the topic of success, how does that sound? Having literally everything in the universe in your hands. 
On top of that, the unwavering love and acceptance of God the Father. Jesus is the ultimate success story, isn't he? You wouldn't know it if you just looked at the, the rough details of his life and his shameful death. But his resurrection and his ascension affirm, confirms Jesus really does have everything. And more than that, he shares it with his people. The best thing for us to do is to hitch our wagon to him uh, to share in his success and his glory. Again, the logic is, I think, pretty simple at one level, but this is hard to live out. Keep, keep being reminded that Jesus really is glorious. He really is worthy of all our lives and serving him. And really, this is the best thing we can be doing. After all, as John finishes this section, verse 36, he reminds us once again that it's only through Jesus that we can have life at all. Why? Why would someone throw away everything else to follow Jesus? Well, verse 36, it's because we owe him our lives. He saved us from God's wrath. John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Jesus came from heaven to take on himself being the focus of God's wrath, God's right anger and for all our evil, all our injustice. Jesus takes it on himself. How great is he? On the cross, he was able to pay the full penalty for all our sins, sparing us from God's wrath. How great is Jesus? Well, he didn't have to do that. But he did it because he loves us. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, we do praise you for your majesty, for your greatness, and for the way that you rule over all. We thank you that your mission is unstoppable, that we know your kingdom will come. So then please help each one of us have uh, this same sort of clarity we see with John, the clarity that uh, day by day we might seek to make you greater in our lives and make us less. Help us to be bold in this. Help us to uh, take lightly the measures of success we see in our world. Please help us instead find that great joy comes from serving you. And we ask you, give us that joy as we uh, seek to be used by you and our efforts to see uh, you transforming lives and growing people to maturity in, uh, into eternity. We pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.